This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. My guest today is Garance Burke. Garance is an award-winning journalist for the Associated Press with a specialization in data journalism and investigative reporting. Garance has won multiple national awards for her work, including the Society of Professional Journalists Sigma Delta Chi Award for Investigative Reporting and the Edward R. Murrow Award. She has experience teaching data journalism as a lecturer at the Berkeley School of Journalism, where she has a master's, and of course her other master's is from the Goldman School of Public Policy. Welcome, Garance. Thanks so much. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. So in 2016, uh, you reported for the AP that more than 20 cast and crew members from previous seasons of The Apprentice um, said that Donald Trump used sexist, demeaning language on set when talking to and about women. Um, that was an explosive story in its own right, but it gave rise to the um, Access Hollywood tapes, which was one of the biggest stories of the entire presidential election, maybe the biggest story of the election. So when you were writing that Apprentice story or reporting that Apprentice story, did you know how huge it was going to be when you were in the process? Well, we knew we had a strong story heading into publication just simply given the numbers of people who were willing to talk to me about what they felt was really demeaning, inappropriate conduct from President Trump on the set of The Apprentice. Um, And so in this case, I spoke to more than 60 people and nearly two dozen of them said that there were some things they felt that were untoward that occurred on set. Um, that many people, many of them named, some of them um, speaking on background, uh, led us to feel that we really had a very strong story. Of course, we had no idea that, you know, given the strength of the reporting, Access Hollywood producers would decide to go back and look at their own footage and Mm -hmm. see what they might find um, that Trump had said on the set of their show. How long does a story like that take you to report? That particular story took about two months. Um, And I should say that, you know, often when you're trying to talk to people, you need to meet them where they are. So that means talking to them at night after they've put their kids to bed, maybe on the weekends when they have a break. Um, And so it took a lot of hanging in there and Mm -hmm. just being willing to meet people at different times when they were available. And you had to know that Trump was the biggest story in the country for the entire year. There were probably tons of other reporters looking for a scoop. Someone might have found one or two people from The Apprentice willing to say something inflammatory. That might have ended up being a mini scoop, right? Were you just working feverishly to get this out, or were you really, really insistent on talking to as many people and as being as thorough as you could? Well, we have a whole team of political reporters at AP who were dispatched to both campaigns and then also a team of investigative reporters who were looking for deeper stories off the news. And so I came into this relatively late, Um, you know, over the summer, uh, basically started looking into The Apprentice in particular. So I think it was that unique focus, Mm -hmm. only looking at Donald Trump's experience on that show um, that gave me the opportunity to to go deeper into that one realm of his trajectory. After the Access Hollywood tape came out, I think a lot of people were expecting that tons of tapes would come out because he had been on so many television programs, radio programs, and so on. Were you surprised that more didn't come out afterwards? 
You know, from talking with former cast and crew, a lot of The Apprentice was shot at a time when people weren't regularly using iPhones Mm. um, to record footage surreptitiously or taking, you know, selfies on set. So most of this footage was handled in a way um, that was very careful. Um, So Mark Burnett Productions would typically have the tapes sent directly from Trump Tower to Los Angeles where they would be edited and then locked away in a vault. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had the sense that it was unlikely that more tapes would immediately surface. Of course, we're still waiting to see if there's you know, some footage on the off chance that, um, that that is not locked up in a vault. Right. And you may not be able to answer this, but I think everyone was waiting with bated breath to see if Apprentice tapes would come out. And if they had you would have been the natural reporter for them to leak to, right? I mean, were you just hounding that story for the entire election season? I was working very hard on that story, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, of course, you know, it was very gratifying to see that the Access Hollywood tapes came out, um, you know, as a result of my reporting in part. But um, I really kept on The Apprentice um, Mm -hmm. as a main center of my investigation. Um, You know, we had all sorts of other people looking at different aspects of both candidates, Mm -hmm. um, digging very deeply into their backgrounds to provide our readers and viewers with, uh, you know, a a most complete picture of the candidates. But that was my unique focus. That was your focus, yeah. Um, Garance, one of the major issues that has emerged post-election is an increasing awareness that fake news was shaping people's perception of the candidates and of the campaign. What do the major institutions of the media um, do about that situation going forward? At AP, we feel like we have a very strong role to play in both debunking uh, news stories that are inaccurate, as well as lifting up fact-based, deeply reported stories um, so that people can have the vital information they need to make decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, It's obviously important for our democracy as well. So Facebook and AP and other partners have recently announced a new initiative um, through which AP and others will be helping to debunk stories circulated on the social media platform that are false and call those out as such. Wow, fascinating. And does that mean a whole new section of the AP that is just the fact checkers? Or do you already have a team in place that will be tackling Facebook and everything that's on there? Well, part of the report um, we've always had includes um, a section called AP Fact Check, which you may have seen, for instance, during the presidential debates. You know, if Hillary said something in real time, we would have a reporter, um, you know, debunk what she had said or, you know, essentially write, yes, indeed, it was true for all of the candidates. Mm. Um, So we're just expanding the AP Fact Check to include uh, basically vetting of stories that contain falsehoods. Um, so trending stories that are inaccurate, we will be putting out there um, and debunking them. So coming to a Facebook feed near you, false as certified by the AP? The AP and its partners, yeah, yes. Very cool. You reported that more than two dozen young undocumented migrants who had arrived in the United States um, had been placed in American homes with a relaxed set of standards um, from, by Health and Human Services, and as a result, were sexually assaulted, were trafficked, were forced to work, were starved in some instances. Um, tell us about that story, and tell us about the impact that story had. 
Well, so I had begun tracking um, what was happening with uh, Central American migrant kids back in 2014. You might remember some of those dramatic pictures on the U.S. border of kids arriving and being crammed into shelters. Um, and some sources had told me at the time that they had concerns about where these kids were ending up. There was a smallish federal program that was responsible for placing them with people in the community. And so I submitted a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, to try to understand how that program worked and where those children and uh, young adults were ending up. What I got nearly a year and a half later was really shocking and I think prompted bipartisan action in Congress, um, given the concerns about these kids ending up with human traffickers, mm -hmm. being starved, and being forced to work in homes across the country. It seemed like that program was totally overwhelmed. They, they actually lost children. You write in one of your stories, in that story, that uh, a social worker went to a home where they had placed 12 children and all they found was an empty apartment and they had no idea where the kids had gone. It's really shocking stuff. It, is the office or program been um, amended or changed or bolstered? Yeah, and I think that's been one of, um, you know, the most gratifying things to work in the policy realm as a journalist is sometimes there are these openings where a policy window will emerge and, um, you know, policymakers, lawmakers, and others in the field have an opportunity to address some of the uh, the concerns that are raised in news stories. Um, so in this case, my story was cited in a Senate hearing, and HHS has since made some improvements. Wow. They's, they've hired two new people to work on child welfare issues. Um, they've improved transparency with some of the government contractors who help place the children in the community, and um, I think are, are are doing well in you know addressing some of those concerns that came up. You wrote a follow-up story that basically found that hundreds of these youths were being kept from enrolling in local schools in the communities they had been placed in because local school officials didn't know what to do with them and didn't want to bear the cost of educating them. Um, and that story also had impact. Tell us about that. So that story um, had more of a data-driven approach. We really wanted to understand in which school districts these children were ending up and how those districts had done over time with meeting the needs of English language learners. Mm -hmm. You know, some districts have never really taught English as a second language, and so naturally you would expect to have a little bit of a difficult adjustment, you know, if suddenly dozens of kids who are coming from Honduras show up yeah. and, you know, need help. Um, but we found that there were... Uh, I believe it was more than 35 districts um, in uh, more than a dozen states across the country where these migrant children were just being barred from enrolling or being routed into alternative programs where they really had very little chance of succeeding. Right, including in San Mateo County, if I'm not mistaken. So mm -hmm. this wasn't just, this was here in California, not far from where we are right now. Correct. Um, so the reason I ask about impact in, in both of those, those stories um, is because you've taken a somewhat non-traditional path for a GSBP alum in that many of us um, are policy analysts or they work in legislatures or they work in federal bureaucracies in one uh, way or another. And you're a journalist, a, a, a national journalist. Um, there aren't a lot of national journalists among our numbers. Uh, and yet, you're having an impact on public policy um, in the same way that we all hope 
to, to achieve. Did you know, when you enrolled at GSVP, when you decided to seek out a Goldman education, did you know that's the way you wanted this all to work out many years later? Well, you know, I just had a sense that having that real statistical spine, having that mm-hmm. quantitative background um, would be a service in uh, any field that I chose. I briefly dabbled working in policy as a consultant for the city of San Francisco and also for the California Public Utilities Commission. I had done some work doing needs assessments for foundations before I came to GSPP. And I made the difficult decision to go back into journalism, in part because I saw the promise of data journalism Mm. as a way to really marry both quantitative and qualitative approaches um, and to get closer to the truth and and put that forward in the public arena. So let's talk about data journalism. Um, It's totally in vogue right now. Uh, I think every... um, political nerd on the left read 538 as often as they possibly could. Um, you've been doing it for quite a while. For, for, for our watchers and listeners for whom 538 is the entirety of their experience with data journalism, explain what data journalism means to you. Well, so for me, it means, um, you know, acquiring and analyzing government or private sector data in the service of telling a deeper and more investigative story, um, using that quantitative approach to get beyond the stenography that journalism is so often accused of, um, you know, a, a role that journalism is so often accused of occupying, in order to really produce new information in the public interest. Um, so I think there are a variety of different ways in which the field has gone that um, are fascinating, be it data visualization or be it the newer trend for a more algorithmic approach to reporting. Um, you know, looking at some of the behind the way, behind the scenes ways in which um, search engines or Amazon uh, are including biases in what they're serving up to us. Um, so I think it's a very exciting, uh, a very exciting field to be a part of right now. So I think a lot of people think of data visualizations when they think of data journalism. They think of going to um, uh, a a site on the web and they click on a story and it has really cool tables and charts and and that's sort of there's really interesting graphic design that accompanies it. But data journalism doesn't have to look like that. Data journalism can be more robust data and more sophisticated use of data embedded in stories traditionally written and traditionally told, right? Right. Do you think that journalism as a whole would benefit from being a little bit more data journalism instead of just cabining it off for this one sort of conception of data journalism for um, embedding more data journalism everywhere? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I inspired by my GSPP education, um, I developed and taught a course for three years at Berkeley's journalism school aiming to help incoming students um, see how they could integrate data and numbers into their daily reporting. Mm. So be that, you know, simply understanding percent change, you know, and how to track trends over time, or do more sophisticated visualizations to help, um, you know, readers and viewers grasp the personal impact of a story um, more visually. So I really do think there's a role for um, that quantitative heft in in even daily reports to try to help people make sense of policies and how they impact their lives. Do you think that 
journalists, if they're going to do that, if they're going to make real what you just suggested, need to be retrained in some sense. Is there a is there a certain bag of tricks that folks need to learn, or is it you your national news outlet hires a bunch of data nerds and they not pejoratively data nerds are great hires a bunch of really great data nerds and those people supply you with the statistics like how does the media need to change the way it operates to effectuate what you're suggesting well i think it could be some of both you know i mean there've been a lot of programmers who've been hired to do very high level projects at ap the new york times you name it um, who are carrying out some of that behind the scenes um, big data work in order to tell more complicated stories. On the other hand, retraining folks who are used to, you know, finding out um, where the societal problems lie and, um, you know, bringing forward policy concerns to the greater public arena, um, helping them understand how to you know, let go of their fear of numbers is a parallel track that I think a lot of media outlets have been pursuing. So I think it's it's some of both. It's both. Uh, Let's talk about your GSB education and and how it impacts your work. Do you think that you approach a story uh, either when you're conceptualizing of it at its very origins or when you're reporting it? Do you think you um, think about a story any differently than your colleagues uh, who are national reporters because you have this quantitative toolkit that you got from the Goldman School? Well, I can say I do remember some of the Eightfold Path. Uh-huh. Um, but I think, um, yeah, just having that that openness to taking a variety of different approaches to understanding um, complex problems may be different um, from what some of my other colleagues uh, might initially do. I tend to do much less he said, she said, you know, simply finding opposing viewpoints and deciding that that's where the story lies. Um, I also don't necessarily come into a story with, um, you know, a very strong hypothesis. I try to remain open to a variety of different ways of telling the story and to look for the counterfactual. If I'm analyzing a new data set that I have obtained, be it through FOIA or somebody leaked it to me, I try to understand what's not in the data. Mm-hmm. You know, what what may be omitted there or what some of the biases may be that are contained within that data. So I think being willing to problematize both what people are telling you as well as data and documents themselves may be a bit different from what others do. Do you think that having, or, or let me put it this way, has your network of GSPP uh, colleagues and alums who now work in all these different public policy areas you might want to report on been a service to you as you do your work as a reporter, either because they're sources or because they can provide the context you need to tell a story accurately? Well, it's been wonderful to just see the many, many places where GSPP alum have ended up um, globally. I have kept in touch with uh, colleagues who have certainly been of help over the years um, as I've looked into a variety of different issues here in California as well as nationally. Um, and uh, I think it's a fantastic network to be a part of. Yeah. When you were at GSCP, you produced a documentary that um, about a Native American uh, casino in the North Bay area that was hugely successful. It played in multiple um, film festivals. How did you manage to pull that off while you were a student? 
I mean, GSPP is not an easy place, right? You have like a fairly substantial workload. And meanwhile, you are producing a film. Well, I think, you know, for any incoming students, I would say, you know, one of the riches of being here at Berkeley is to be able to take advantage of all of the offerings on campus. And, um, you know, for me, it certainly was a little bit more challenging to finish that year of heavy econ and stats Mm -hmm. while simultaneously editing a film. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if you bring that focus and drive to your Berkeley education, you'll get through it. Yeah, very cool. Um, So I have one last question for you. Uh, The the AP, well, I googled your name, and the AP has its website where it lists all of your work. But when you read an AP story in a major outlet, it just says Associated Press. It doesn't have a reporter's byline. I, I was a journalist once, a young journalist, before I went to the Goldman School. And I was hungry for every byline I could possibly get. It felt sometimes like my career depended on getting this next byline for some 400-word thing I had written. If I, wasn't be, if I was an AP reporter and I saw my story explode all over social media and it didn't have my name on it, I would have been pulling my hair out. How do you and your colleagues at the AP deal with that? Is it just part of the deal? You're like, we're going to get less credit than other reporters when we take this job? I think one of the things that um, you know, I like to keep in mind about the AP is it's been around for 170 years. It knows what it's doing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it is, you know an outlet that by nature of its uh, position as a nonprofit cooperative, Mm. our content is seen by over half the world's population every day. Wow. So that's something that you begin to take for granted a little bit. You're not working for, you know, a small local newspaper, um, you know, or a local TV station that airs in Omaha only. So, you know, while sometimes our bylines are stripped off, members decide when they want to use them. You know, if our content is being seen by over half the world's population in a day, um, you know, that's a pretty large area uh, to make an impact. Yeah, yeah. So the formula works. Don't question it. I get it. That totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we've been playing a very large role in, you know, setting a standard for ethics and accuracy in journalism over that 170-year period. And I think, you know, now only we'll we'll strengthen those aptitudes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing your insights to our uh, show here. Um, And uh, as a former journalist myself, it's fascinating to watch someone blend journalism and a public policy degree with such facility. I mean, it's really impressive. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Such a pleasure. All right. Talk to you next time on In the Arena.